Before we jump into the app, quick reminder that nothing on Bell Curve is financial advice. Everything is just a meme. Hope you guys enjoy. First thing that goes when you see bear markets like this is the terms. You still have the high valuation. You still have the amount raised, but it's going to be really, really, you know, painful terms for the founder because if they want to raise that much at that valuation, it's like, okay, you tell me the valuation, I'll tell you the terms. And, and I think that, you know, is probably the direction that we're heading. So when we're talking about secondary, it's, it's become less and less of a factor in conversations with term sheets. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. You got the roundup. You got Yano hosting today. Mike is on a flight, uh, cross-country flight, on an international flight actually today. So we got Vance and Michael joining. We're talking crypto. We're talking macro. We're going to talk about kind of a day in the life of a crypto VC, what the framework guy's been up to recently. Um, but Michael, Vance, welcome to the show, guys. Thank you, sir. Good to see you. How we doing? How we doing? How's the week been? <laughs> good. It's good. I mean, uh, what are we doing right now? Um, kind of like typical stuff, I would say, you know, taking pitches, working with portcos, um, buying some stuff, you know, like slowly. But, you know, other than that, I mean, we're not writing letters to our congressman or the Fed to get the, the market <laughs> banking. Uh, I think that's more of like a boomer move. Jab at the boomer uh, macro investors. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're just kind of hanging out, honestly. Nice. So we actually you- are. I was going to add uh, that there actually are a lot of really attractive deals right now. And I think, um, you know, they're bigger in size and, and they're kind of later stage, but there's actually a lot of, a lot of deal flow going on right now, which is um, usually a good indication that things are going to start to come back at, at some point soon. Are you talking about the down round? I'm starting to see some down rounds in like the crypto SaaS businesses that are, are the like maybe series C, series D, they're raising at like 50% discounts. Are those the kind of deals that you guys are interested in right now? No, I mean, we're, we're early stage. So, you know, sometimes pre-seed, usually seed series A, rare that we would do like a B plus, um, just given our fund size, given our strategy, we want to be at the early stages and, and really kind of work from that angle. I, I would be shocked if there were any up rounds in like the B plus from anything yeah. that raised in 2021, you know, so now it's like on the early side, the, the early deals that I've been doing are, it used to be like in the 30, $40 million valuation range, which was like, it was high and everyone just accepted that it was high and you're still doing it. And now, like, I think the deal I did this week was 15 million. So it's just like, I feel like valuations in the early stage have come down a lot. Yep. But the deals yeah. are still getting done. Still getting done. I think the one thing we're waiting for is like the class of 2021 that raised kind of in that era is going to have to come back to market. And, you know, the demand side of the equation is like nowhere near where it used to be, uh, just in terms of investors and dry powder. And the supply side is like going to obviously increase as these people come back to market. So the clearing price is going to be lower. Um, I think it's going to be very asymmetric as to how low it goes based on where the round closed and then what stage it was last year. Like the, like, you know, there's a handful of crypto startups that have, you know, so or over $10 billion valuations. Like those are just like, you know, you, you would be implying that, you know, OpenSea is worth more than Coinbase. Uh, you know, like it doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, same with like Alchemy. So I think those are going to be the, the most re-rated ones. So do you think those those late those late ones you think take what a fifty percent haircut? You think they try? Do you think do a do you think they raise or are they basically just like cut everything so we don't have to raise a massive down round? 
cut everything, but also like there's kind of like some some fancy footwork you can do with valuations when you get into like the down round potential you know scenario where you're like, you know, like not a 50% discount. Uh, so if we were at 13 billion, do it at 10 and we'll give you a bunch of warrants. So like at least when we're trying to make acquisitions or like, you know, give people comp, everything's marked at the peak. Yeah. But I mean, these businesses are not worth what they were a year ago, you know, like even with OpenSea. NFT volumes are down 97%. Should their market cap take a 97% hit? Like, I don't know about that, but it, there's some sort of disconnect there. I mean, the, the big thing is when you think about the later stage stuff, you have to do it more so on a comps basis because you have traction, you have data points, you have stuff that you can evaluate these businesses off of ostensibly. And if you look at any of the, the market comps for growth rounds of companies that SPAC went public in 2020, 2021, I mean, the average price is down 85%. So it's not only just like a, a crypto specific thing. I think it's just any sort of growth company right now that isn't by default profitable or, or cash flow margin or uh, contribution margin positive. You know, any of these businesses are, are going to take a hit if they wanted to re-rate their, their valuation. But to Vance's point, we haven't started to see it yet, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if you start seeing the uh, slight down round plus warrant um, deals start to come through. Hmm. What about in the early stage? Like, where are you guys? Let's look at the last like five deals that Framework did. Are they infrastructure deals? Are they gaming? Are they NFT? Like, what are the last five deals that you did or that you can talk about? So we've got like three categories that we focus on. Um, gaming is obviously a big one, and you know we're more on the infrastructure side than the single title side. Like, we're we're waiting to see which games work and which permutations of like you know, blockchains and clients and server-side gameplay like actually make sense. And and we're going to have a lot of data points in Q1. And I expect us to just be more aggressive kind of in Q1 after we understand that. Um, but like we're doing deals, um, some, some are unannounced, we can't really get into those. Uh, but, you know, like gaming is, is a big focus. DeFi is, is still a big focus for us. And I think a lot of it is just like, the people who are spinning out of Citadel or GRW or like the largest, you know, HFT shops, like that's kind of where we see the new talent on the institutional, like maybe more regulated context come from. Um, and like payment for order flow and private order flow are kind of like part and parcel of those markets. And then the last one is just like infrastructure broadly. And like we see, you know, we're on track to hit like three, 4,000 pitches this year or startups that we at least see. And so like we understand where all the pain points are. We understand where things are, you know, breaking, where there's room for middleware, where there's room for, you know, SaaS. And like that's pretty easy to see. The stuff that's more consumer in nature, that's uh that's like I would say, you know, it's kind of like split between NFTs and games and like we're only going to do games. NFTs for us like I feel like if you're investing in NFTs as a broad category at this point, you're probably like a year late and you're not where the market is heading either. Hmm. You guys saw three or four thousand pitches this year. Yeah, I mean, we have, we have we have you know six investors, seven investors. Um, they're seeing you know on average you know five or ten things you know per day, um, and so these things add up. And you know that like most of our job is just disqualifying like eighty percent of the pitches just you know from the rip. How does someone break through the that break through that first mold? Is it like if you look at the last five or ten deals that you did, how many of them came through? intros and referrals from existing founders versus like maybe all of them all of them probably um and so probably about of the three three four k whatever whatever that number is i'd say that's probably 40 to 50 percent of that is through like someone that we know the rest of it is either like cold or we saw it on twitter or you know we're you know pounding the pavement you meet someone at a conference kind of stuff 
Um, and, and maybe that also leads to one, meeting at a conference leads to five more later on when they just start sending you things. So I would say the best way to break through is have a reference from someone that we trust and know um, and also have a good connection to whoever that person is. And our best resource for deal flow is our existing founders, um, just because they're seeing everything. You know, they're talking with potential partners. Um, they've got friends in the industry who, you know, they're working or co-working with. Uh, like that type of stuff is the best thing. And then you start to find these little pockets where like in the DeFi era, it was, you know, we invested in synthetics and we got to know the Australian DeFi community really well. And that led to probably like four or five other investments. Yeah. Um, you know, there's sort of a pocket as well uh, going on in San Francisco as well, where you, you get kind of connected into the tech scene, the crypto Web3 scene here, and, and you just start to get to know people. Um, same thing with India um, and Western Europe as well. So you, you kind of like find a pocket and then that leads to a, a bunch more opportunities that arise. Let me ask you a really specific question here that another founder was asking me because he, uh, he's thinking about raising and he had, he had a really specific question that I, that I didn't have the answer to, which is it's about taking money off the table. So in the early rounds, like if you're raising your seed or your series A, like you're probably not asking to take money off the table. But once you get to that, maybe it's series A, but maybe it's series B, like at what point is it fair for a founder to ask the VCs to take some money off the top via a secondary, right? And, and, and so, yeah, that's the first part of that question. I think it's very different if it's working or not. Um, let's say, it, let's say it's working. In this case, it's working. They've got like 50 employees. They're generating, generating good, good. Uh, maybe they have like a hundred employees. They're generating good revenues. Um, yeah. So I, I, what I would say is it, then it really depends on if it is working, it depends on how much the founder owns. So making sure that they maintain their incentive model, um, making sure that it's an amount that makes sense. If you're talking about pulling, you know, two to five million off the table in a in a Series A, like that's going to be a non-starter. If you're talking about pulling off like 200, 300k because you want to, you know, have some cash in the bank to get a new apartment or put a down payment on a house, like that's a different story. Uh, but I do think that you know it's the incentive model to make sure that the founder is still the largest shareholder or you know the founding group is still the largest group of shareholders, highly incentivized to make this thing work. The amount of money is not money that allows you to just like go and chill, um, but maybe alleviate some stresses in your life as you've been grinding for the last few years. Um, and then also the third variable is making sure that it's fair to everybody else. So if it's just you know the, the co-founders and there's someone who's like a first employee, probably should offer a pro rata opportunity for them. Um, but you know, that, those are kind of the, the ways that we think about it. Hmm. That's interesting. You thinking about taking some money off the table? <laughs> yeah. Frankly, this is the investment pitch right there. <laughs> What's the thing? You ask for advice, you get money, you ask for money, you end up getting advice. Exactly. Um, yep. uh, no, I just think it's something that like a lot of crypto founders are thinking about as they raise, I mean, like we don't, we don't have VCs, like we're, we're in a different place. Um, thankfully. Uh, but there are, I think a lot of founders who have basically been on that, what feels like VC hamster wheel. And they're like, I, I mean, I think a lot of founder psychology, it, it gets tough in a bear market for folks who have been on that VC hamster wheel for what feels like maybe five years or something. And they're like, man, like I'm thinking about raising the next round. It'd be nice if let's say I raise like 50 mil, if I could take like, I don't know, you take 10% of that round, you take that off the table. I think a lot of VCs wouldn't want to do that though, A, because you disincentivize the founder and B, you, um, you're giving money that doesn't go into building the company, right? You give them money, it doesn't go into engineering, it doesn't go into marketing, it doesn't go into scaling the company, it goes into their 
bank account. So. Yep. Uh, the, the other thing that I think about with stuff like this, I mean, the, these are all just like deal points in a term sheet, essentially. And the valuation always, or in the amount raised always, is going to be sort of like the headline figure of whatever, you know, the term sheet is. It's like, oh, here's a term sheet for like five on 50. But what's baked into that, which I think, you know, kind of goes on, untalked about without, you know, uh, among, not among VCs is the terms are really what matter. You know, it could be like equity preferred where you got 2x participating and, you know, it's just really, really draconian uh, terms that are baked into that high valuation and, and super huge amount. But when times are good, like we had over the last 18 months, 2021, 2020, you had really lax terms. And so you would see a lot more of these opportunities because people would say, hey, hey, founder, take my deal. I'm going to give you really lax terms. It's going to be a good valuation, good amount raised, and I'm going to let you take 10% off the table. You know, that would be something that gets discussed as a negotiating point. Now, now that we're seeing, you know, things come down, the first thing that goes when you see bear markets like this is the terms. You still have the high valuation. You still have the amount raised, but it's going to be really, really, you know, painful terms for the founder because if they want to raise that much at that valuation, it's like, okay, you tell me the valuation, I'll tell you the terms. And, and I think that, you know, is probably the direction that we're heading. So when we're talking about secondary, it's, it's become less and less of a factor in conversations with term sheets. What's a term that founders don't think about enough. And you see maybe other, obviously frameworks, the best VC firm out there. So uh, you guys are very founder friendly, but maybe you see other VC firms being a little draconian and like, what, what, what's a term or two that you see founders not thinking enough about. And then they wake up three years later and they're like, ah, shit, that one term is really screwing me over. I mean, we are founder friendly, I'll say, um, but like, you know, we're, we're pretty honest with most of the deals that we're doing where it's like, you know, we're not going to be the highest valuation term sheet that you get. Um, you know, we'll, we'll probably get pretty close uh, if it's competitive, but like, you know, you're going to have to take some sort of discount for working with us. Like all of the value add stuff is not in the term sheet. It's like everything we do after. Um, but yeah, I mean, the things that founders don't think about enough, I would say are, um, the first one is the first one is uh, the knock on effects of raising at a high valuation your seed round. Um, so let's say you raise, you know, at at a hundred million, and you raise enough for two years, and you come back and you kind of don't have great metrics, not a whole lot to show for it. Uh, you know, if you're raising a down round, that's pretty bad for employee morale. That's like it becomes like a really tough conversation and even getting the deal done. And you have potential, you know, some terms in the original term sheet where if you raise a down round, you get like additional dilution. Um, and that's called, you know, full ratchet uh, dilution. And like that can really hurt a company. So I would say like, you know, it feels good to raise money and like make yourself like a paper millionaire. But there's also things that like manifest on the other side of that that are negative if you don't perform. And like, you know, in the next year, I think our advice to founders is like, don't expect hyper growth. Don't expect to hit the metrics that will allow you to raise, you know, your series B free and clear. Like it's going to be somewhere in between pretty marginal, potentially like not a huge up round, potentially flat or down. Uh, and the higher valuation you raise that initially, the worse that gets. Um, the second stuff I would say is uh, just like broadly um, employee compensation, uh, whether that be on the token side or, you know, a, a stock option pool. A lot of people just think that's an afterthought. Um, and, you know, it's it like you need to compensate all of your employees fairly. Like your first 10 employees, um, you know, outside of your co-founding group should probably own 10% of the company. 
Um, it's not all for you to just hoard, you know, like Scrooge McDuck style with all the gold coins in that, in that bath. Like you need to actually give people incentives. Yeah. The, the two that I was going to say before Van said that are, are anti-dilution. That's something that people just don't think about. Um, especially because you're signing the deal, you've got great terms, you're excited about the future. You don't expect there to be a two year bear market where you might have to have a, an, an anti-dilution clause come into effect. Um, and then mismanagement of the employee stock option pool is what I was going to say. And, and, you know, that comes in two flavors. What Van said is definitely one of them where, you know, you've been too stingy and people just aren't incentivized to stick around. And you have the first changing of the guard of new, uh, people coming in because you lost all the people because they didn't have enough equity, you know, they, or, or, you know, the, the terms were not good enough for them. Um, and then the other one is you can't really change the employee stock. You can, if you have board approval, but you can't really change the employee stock option pool unless you have a new round. And it's, it's usually pretty hard to do that. Um, where, whereas each round you kind of refresh the employee stock option pool. And so if you give away too much or you don't have enough in the pool to begin with, you're kind of stuck because then you, you can't raise or you don't want to raise because it's going to be a down round potentially. And you don't have any more equity to give out to any new employees. Mm -hmm. And, and so like, what do you do? It's like, you, you're really in a, in a top place. So tell um, me how that works. So you, so let's say a company has 5 million shares. Uh, you will allocate 500,000 500, for the- A million. Pool. Yeah, uh, probably a million to begin okay. with. Um, because as you raise more, that dilution is gonna come into effect. And, and really it's like, you're dividing up the same pie. You know, if, it, if yeah. it's 20% um, or, or 15%, let's say it's 750,000 shares. Uh, and, and you give up all of that, the next round, let's say you, you, you increase the amount of shares by 20%. So it goes from 5 million to 6 million, but then you also have to have a new refresher on the ESOP. So then you get into the math of like figuring out, okay, is it going to be like six and a half million shares? Are you going to refresh it back to, to 15%? Are you going to refresh it back to 12% or is it going to be 10%, 20%? I mean, that, this is a term that usually gets put into the term sheet of like, here's the valuation, here's how much you're going to raise here's how much the ESOP is going to be. Um, because, you know, if you can't, if you're not doing that at a new adjusted uh, valuation and a new new funding round, it, it's going to be really difficult because that's just dilutive to everybody. So the, the board usually rarely approves that unless it's dire. How, how, um, how articulate and like well-versed are the founders when they come to you guys with this stuff? Like are most people coming in and they know all this stuff, they know how to do it. They've, they've read all the books, they've talked to the lawyers or are they coming to you guys being like, I know like I could get screwed or like, I know that like there are things that matter, but like, I need you to kind of work with me and teach me how to do this. Uh, what I would say is, so first off, there's a standards set, uh, you know, the NVCA, I think is what it stands for the national venture capital association. Like there's a standard for, for all of these types of terms. Um, so it may not be the founder that's well-versed in this, but the founder is probably listening to their lawyers and, and counsel mm -hmm. who are extremely well-versed in this. And that's their job. I would also say just like, especially at the stages where we're talking about, you know, seed and series A, the term sheets are pretty standard. You know, you don't see these like onerous draconian like terms and like liquidation preferences, like that stuff that gets put into the B plus, because that's where you need the protection. If you're writing a $50 million check, you need to have downside protection there for that fund, fund and the fund dynamics to work. For us, it's, it's pretty vanilla. Um, so I, I would say it's not usually a, a tough 
discussion or debate when we send these term sheets or have these this, have these uh, valuation discussions. It's more just like, hey, here's the terms. Here's where you're, where you're valued. Let's have discussions later on down the road about up rounds, down rounds, what to do next to fundraising. But for us, it's pretty cut and dry. Interesting. I want to talk macro, actually. Um, any other like VC advice for founders who are listening to this? Anything else you'd keep in mind? Oh, yeah. Don't do advisor deals. Those are those are stupid. Well, or, or well, what would that be like? You know, you give away X percent of the company to, for someone to be like an advisor. Yep. Most of the time, you just don't hear from those people very often. Well, what I was going to say is at a very bare minimum, you have to have vesting and you like have a very clear conversation. It's uh, okay. You're going to get 10 basis points of the company. That's going to vest over three or four years. Here is the minimum set of things that you need to do to earn these shares every year. And, you know, we're going to adjust it as we need to, but like if an advisor is getting shares just for like showing up, putting their name on something, then that's a, a really bad yeah. look and a, and a red flag. I'll take the other side of that. Blockworks has a couple of advisors and we gave them a smidge of equity in the early days. They have been, one of them is Sean Griffey. He runs a company called Industry Dive, not crypto. It's a big media company. They just sold for half a billion. Um, yeah. He, I mean, he's been incredibly helpful. We also have Matt Hogan, who's one of the, yep. the chief investment officer of Bitwise. That's Permissionless, cool. our big event at Permission, Permissionless was from Matt Hogan. Yeah, Matt was the one that's worth it. Who Most, like in the early, we were, we were talking about doing a big conference and we're like, it's going to be like one day macro, one day like NFTs, one day like DeFi. And he's like, you don't realize how big DeFi is going to be. Go all in on DeFi, make this huge conference, like plant your flag. And we're like, oh, I don't know. He's like, take the risk, do it. And so Matt Hogan is the one who actually sparked the idea for Permissionless. That's I think awesome. that was my favorite conference this year. Yeah, it was great. We love it. All right, let's talk macro. Um, uh, this is a pretty crazy week with macro. Like FOMC minutes came out, the CPI print hit, uh, employment numbers came in last Friday. Michael, what are you looking at in macro right now? That's interesting. Inflation. That's the only thing that matters, frankly. Um, and it's not just, you know, the headline CPI number. It, it's really the core components. Um, the owner equivalent rent is really kind of the big, um, the 800 pound gorilla at this moment. Everybody who has private data, so the Redfin Zillas of the world, suggests that rent and owner equivalent rent should be falling off a cliff right now. It's actually spiking. Uh, and so there, there's some lag in owner equivalent rent showing up in from BLS data into you know inflation numbers, but nobody really knows exactly what that lag is. Uh, and right now, I, I think the, the first month to actually start to fall was in like February or March of this year. So we're coming up on like nine months of this being you know pretty pretty tough uh, and and spiking of uh, rent in the actual data set that gets used which is, I think, a 40% variable into the overall picture of inflation. So it, it, there's all these data points that suggest, you know, used car prices are falling off a cliff, healthcare costs should be going down eventually, um, and rent should be going down, but it's just not showing up in the data right now, which is frustrating. There's this good, here, I'm going to try to share this. Can you guys see this? Yep. Yep. Uh, Andreas Senna-Larsen, uh, who hosts a podcast actually with Blockworks called The Macro Trading Floor, had this good tweet. He's like, huge US CPI day. Whether the trend has turned in inflation is the only thing that matters for equities. And he shared this chart of when the peak was in during Q4 of uh, 1974. The, the, the orange chart here is uh, inflation going or yeah, inflation going from like what, 
three to 12%. As that happened, the S&P tanked. And basically, you can see like the quarter that CPI peaked out, inflation turned, uh, excuse me, that the S&P turned around. So I think, I think you're right, Michael, like that is that is the biggest thing that matters right now. Asset prices and, and, in, uh, and interest rates have an inverse relationship. So as inflation goes up, Fed needs to raise federal funds mm -hmm. rate inflate, uh, to fight inflation. And that has a negative effect on asset values. S&P is a good, right. good index there. Right. Do you think that we can have a, um, a, any sort of bull market in crypto, like a real sustained bull market in crypto before macro turns around? Probably not. But like, you know, it, it, there's like macro like turning around and there's like, you know, macro being like semi-cooperative. Um, I think those are pretty different things. And like right now we're kind of uh, we're riding this like wave of uncertainty as to like where things net out. I think once we get a picture of like where things actually net out and, and you know, it's just going to be a little bit more accommodative. And so like, we're going to find our footing generally, like I pay, I pay attention to the macro stuff, uh, you know, as well, but I'm, I'm a little bit more, I would say just like sanguine, probably more bullish than Michael. Um, I, I think things are, you know, driven by, you know, positioning and expectations. So like, where are people today? Um, how are they, you know, interpreting the world and where do they think it's going to go? And, you know, on the positioning side, People are very bearish. People are very underinvested. People are, you know, stables that are at an all-time high uh, in crypto. Like, you know, there's all these things which which would suggest people have really left the market. You know, volumes are down. All these speculative activities down. So positioning is like probably near lows, um, and expectations are also near lows. Like people think the world's going to end. Like somebody told me yesterday that like. You know, like, you know, couple ne next couple of days, like nuclear war, then like rates are going to go to 20%. And it's like, all right, like that's uh, concerning, obviously, but that's kind of where the consensus is. And so if positioning improves, if expectations improve, like things are going to improve. And so, yeah, like I'm, I'm more bullish. Like I think all bear markets have one thing in common and that's that they end. Um, and so, you know, like... No, I'm not really interested in people's, you know, uh, digestion of like the minute by minute inflation numbers. I'm more interested in people who have like interesting takes as to where things go in a year. Um, like that's where all the alpha is made. And like, you know, the, the people telling me nuclear war is going to break out, that that is honestly interesting. It's like, okay, that's like probably a new, but like way more bearish than anyone would expect perspective. I also think the takes from people who are like in the freight industry and are in the trucking industry and that are like, hey, the shit's falling off a cliff. Like, you know, inflation is going to nuke, like just wait, uh, are also very interesting. And so like I tend to skew towards more of where the data is on a real time basis, which suggests that, you know, this isn't really going to be a problem next year. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, I'm uh, I'm a bull. Hmm. Uh, just to be clear, I'm, I'm a bull, too. I think the the things that really so markets move faster than economics and markets right now are suggesting that inflation is going to come off a, a cliff pretty fast here. Um, the other thing that moves and, and the other thing that moves faster than markets is crypto and crypto markets. Uh, so I, I'm not necessarily thinking that this will be a sustained bear market. I mean, there could be, you know, exogenous things like, um, you know, a, a nuclear war or, you know, one of the things that's been coming up over the last two weeks is UK pension troubles, um, you know, increasing rates causes the bond market to have the second worst year that it's had yet. And, you know, much of pension funds are, are heavily invested in bonds. So I think they're having a really tough time right now. And we can get into that as well, if, if interesting. But um, I, I think generally, 
um, I can't remember who was talking about this, but markets bottom in the first third of any sort of recession trend or, or bear market, and then they start to come back up. And so you're going to start to see a divergence, I think, of you know these markets reacting to this negative news, and then you know mm-hmm. actually coming back up faster than the economics will, and, and definitely faster. Hmm. So Vance, at the beginning of the conversation, when you said that you guys are starting to buy or that you're starting to buy right now, are you buying because you're like are you trading things right now? Or are you buying crypto because you just like you don't really know if we're at the bottom, but you just think that the prices are good right now and you just want to hold things and like start dollar cost averaging into stuff? Like what why are you buying right now? And can you say what you're buying or like some sense of what you're buying? <laughs> No, you're oh yeah. oh we forgot to read the we forgot to read the disclosure again. Crap. Nah. Uh, I'll put that in at the beginning. Well, we'll read at the end. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think the bear the bear argument certainly sounds more intelligent. And like whenever we say anything that's like remotely bullish or like even not bullish, just like optimistic, people are are really uh, up in arms. Um, I think the reality of of the data is that you know we have decades, actually two centuries of data that suggests. You know, when the market gets shellacked as hard as it did this year, you know, statistically, you're very, very likely to have some sort of mean reversion. And so, like, yeah. you know, you could argue with us all you want, but you'd have basically no evidence, you know, whatsoever. And we'd have all the data in the world, which suggests that, you know, they're wrong. And so, you know, what do you do? Um, you, you do things slowly. You you accumulate things that make a lot of sense slowly. There's a good tweet from Michael Burry, which came out yesterday, where he said that, um, you know, obviously tech nuked in 2001, you know, 2002. Um, and, and, you know, what was the 2002 to 2008? What was the bull market in, if anything? Um, and, you know, the S&P took a long time to get back to all time highs, but like really what performed well was value and things that made a lot of sense that had strong management teams that had cash flow, where, you know, people had sold all their shares, like, you know, it, it was kind of left for dead and left for a new perspective and buyer set. And I think that's where we're going to go. It's there, things are going to be more based on fundamentals. There's going to be a lot of dispersion between winners and losers, and it's going to be demarcated on who actually has traction and is accruing cash. And, you know, we're not buying things because like we think crypto is cool. Uh, we're buying like if, if, you know, there was a better thing to invest in, you know, we would go and invest in that. But like right now we're just looking at the fundamentals of these projects and there's a lot of interesting things. And, you know, at the end of the day, you have to buy when the prices are low. That's what we're paid for. Um, and if we're just sitting here and the market recovers, our LPs are going to be like, you know, what the fuck? Um, and so we have a duty to actually like lean against the prevailing bearish trend. Um, again, because we have all of the data, the other side has basically all of the anecdotes. Um, but I don't think those are very strong. I would say we also have the benefit of time. You know, we're talking about venture funds that, you know, by, by default are multiple years in deployment phase and then multiple years in, in, um, in disbursement phase. And, and so I think eventually, you know, this all, it, we're constantly looking one to two years at a minimum out on sort of the macro side to guess, you know, what is the macro going to be in a year from now, in two years from now? So we can help advise our, our companies on, you know, is it the right time to raise now? Should you wait for six months, 12 months, 18 months? And then from just like a general perspective of when we think we want to, you know, be selling these assets or, or realizing gains on these assets is like five years out. So yeah. like, you know, macro people are, are trading on like a month to month, quarter to quarter basis. And that's just not what we do. Hmm. Yeah, well said. You guys want to talk about crypto the week? Let's do it. Want to talk about mangoes? It's tough. I feel bad for them. 
Um, this is this was a. Sorry, do you want to do the intro? I just have a lot no. of context with this. No, uh, I, want, I want you to do it. Yeah. So Mango got hacked, um, and basically what they had happen was um, Mango is a decentralized per- protocol where you can trade against an oracle price instead of trading against an or- an order book. And you know what that means is. You know, if I'm trading against an order book, I'm trading against real people or at least market makers um, who, you know, are putting bids or asked in and you can tell what the liquidity is, what the price is, et cetera. And the benefit of that is that, you know, there's nobody who can manipulate the price somewhere else. And then you get, you know, you kind of take it in the shorts on whatever exchange you're on because like the price isn't real. Like the price is always going to be real in some sort of context with the order book or AMM model. Um, with the Oracle model, you're relying on another exchange to tell you what the price is. Um, and if that exchange is pretty liquid on that pair, you can manipulate where the Oracle is pretty easily. And on the other side, you know, you can take huge directional bets for or against that price with no slippage. Um, and so, you know, like we actually have a good deal of experience with this. Um, the Korean won attack, Michael, I remember you, we remember that from synthetics, uh, the maker attack on synthetics as well. That was another one where people would manipulate the spot market, trade against the Oracle print and, you know, cause some sort of either front running or just, you know, basically arbitrage on the synthetic side, which we were unable to stem. And that was really painful. We actually had to delist maker. Uh, from the synthetic system. Um, and then the Korean one attack like basically precipitated a recapitalization of the entire system. Um, so like these things can get very serious. Um, what, what, what was the Korean one attack? So that, that, that one in particular was more of an Oracle outage where you right. had two institutional partners who were providing and, and, you know, institutional data providers who were uh, providing price feeds for the Korean one. They both simultaneously went offline. I think ultimately it was determined to be like an AWS outage or something. But basically what it did is it allowed Korean won to go to zero, which means you could buy infinite amount of Korean won for $1 of value uh, or, you know, whatever it was, the conversion rate. So it it just, someone was able to print like uh, something like $2 trillion worth of Korean won and then basically held like the protocol hostage because they said, hey, I have this value. And, and basically the protocol said, hey, if you have this value, all of that goes to zero anyway. So like, congratulations, you just strapped the bomb to your chest and like walked into a negotiation. And and so I think generally like that type of situation was solved really simply by adding chain link oracles because that didn't exist in, in the ecosystem prior. Um, whereas this market manipulation in illiquid markets, that, that's something that just kind of persists in, in projects and systems that don't have this type of control in place. And right now in this synthetic example, nothing gets listed unless it has a liquid enough market. And there's also, you know, other uh, internal protocol upgrades that have been gone in to actually prevent this stuff from happening. So like front running has not a solved issue, but it's been worked on and it's kind of like math, you know, there's, mm-hmm. it's never going to be exactly solved, but it's going to be something that you can work on over time. And they happen, but it's just kind of the first, this mango situation is it's like, deja vu in a lot of ways and unfortunately synthetics never had this bad of a, a bad of an issue but you know it, it's just something that you know we worried about in 2019 and 2020 when we were you know solving this and working on it with them uh, or they were working on it um but it, it is uh representative of, of how dangerous these trading against a price oracle can be yeah and and the the criminal not the criminal mistake but like the the cardinal sin that they had was basically like listing really illiquid stuff and giving people infinite, you know, infinite liquidity on the fill if you trade against the price. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was even worse that it was their own token. Like that's just like, 
kind of unforgivable. You know, you just need better risk management than that. And yeah, they lost a hundred million dollars. And now the hacker is like, you know, kind of put up this funny governance proposal to like, which he also voted on with all of his mango to, uh, you know, all of it. So like, there's also Solana is like more of a closed ecosystem. So, you know, you're really not going anywhere with this money. Um, And, you know, the hacker funded it with his FTX wallet. And like people think they know who he is now. So, you know. I think net net is just like, this is bad for Mango and it's bad for like the regulatory uh, perception of Mango. Um, So yeah, not great. Vance, how would they, I think, I understand everything except how would, if you were Mango, how would you have prevented this from happening? So like how, how we did it with synthetics was Delphi basically made this huge report on like, what is the minimum amount of liquidity that we can have for something to be listed with infinite slippage? Or, or sorry, no slippage on an infinite fill. Yeah. Um, and like, you know, at the beginning of synthetics, there was this idea that like we can list any asset with an infinite slippage. And like we kind of learned the hard way that that was actually not the case. Um, and, you know, now there's all, all these very stringent kind of standards for what we list and how. But, you know, I just don't think they had that or I think they didn't even think through it, uh, you know, or, or maybe they just wanted more liquidity for Mango, but it's just a bad look. <laughs> Infinite slippage is just not going to be something that really works in the context of crypto, unless you're talking about like Bitcoin and Ethereum only. Um, everything else is going to be low liquidity enough where you can probably find some way to manipulate in some way, shape or form. And and so now Synthetics also has slippage based pricing. So like the pricing of what your fill actually is via the Oracle is based on how much you would be taking out relative to the market and the liquidity in that market. Vance, what are your thoughts now that, okay, so this mango thing happened? Like, what, what are your, I guess, takeaways from this? Like, what, what are you thinking about now that this just happened? I mean, it doesn't really change my perspective on a lot. This is more <laughs> like bad, bad team and bad practice than like bad product. Um, I think they're going to spend a lot of time with regulators and they're, the regulators are going to ask a lot of like tough questions that they probably wouldn't have otherwise gotten. Like it feels like the field of DeFi is thinning because people are just nuking themselves accidentally Um, or or just like, I don't know, the field of DeFi is thinning. I think that's really positive. Like the best teams are consolidating market share. They have more capital to go off and leverage the space and innovate. Like, I think that's positive. Um, I don't want to get it to the point where like, you know, only FTX is able to do any of this stuff. And like, we all just like fall under their umbrella. Um, So yeah, I mean, we just need to stop kind of making these mistakes because like these are well-documented mistakes in crypto that have been made before. Like would just you, Vance, would you call this a, a lot of people were like, this, this was a hack and chain analysis put out this nice uh, tweet thread or like report. They're like, this is the biggest hack month in crypto history. When I hear you describe what happened on mango though, this feels like just taking advantage of a, of a market basically like not really a hack or maybe I'm misunderstanding it. No, I mean, it's like, it's not a hack. Like the purists would say it's not a hack. The code worked as intended, code is law, right, whatever. Right, right. But like, right. I don't know, where where we draw the line is like, is there malicious intent? Like, do you intend to steal retail funds? And like, if you're trying to do that, like, you know, we're kind of diametrically well, opposed. When, when, when Soros broke the Bank of England, like that, there was, mal, mal, you could say there was malicious, like he knew how bad it was going to be, but he's like, the market is set up in a way that I will profit tremendously if I take advantage of this market uh, imbalance, even though it has, even though there's like bad intent that, I mean, even though he knew how bad it was going to get. Well, so, a huge, huge, a, difference, huge difference though. I mean, he was playing within the confines of the rules. 
Whereas the CFTC, which is probably going to be the governing body for mango markets, is set with a mandate where they go after with potential criminal uh, uh, action for anyone who's manipulating markets. Mm. And this is absolutely a market manipulation. Uh, it may be, it may, mm. may be exactly Coda's law and the way that it worked, but it's an exploit nonetheless. And if, and if you're able to manipulate mar- markets for financial gain, I, I would imagine that this would not be viewed very favorably by them. Got it. Yeah. CFTC being them. The, like George Soros had the idea that the pound was overvalued uh, and he, he shorted it. Like this person didn't have a perspective on whether Manger was under or overvalued. He just knew that he could manipulate the price and, and steal money. That's fair. That's fair. Um, you guys worried about all these hacks and like, are you, does this make you, maybe let me rephrase it. Does it make you more hesitant to play around in different protocols and like allocate capital and size to different, like new protocols? I think those are two separate things play around in different protocols and allocate capital to different protocols. Uh, you know, that the latter of the two comes with risk, whereas playing yeah. around, it's like, Hey, you know, let's test out this user experience, let's test out this flow. Like there's interesting stuff being created in DeFi every single day. And I think that's, that's the stuff that's pretty exciting on the flip side. Um, one of the companies that we backed, um, who I won't mention, but, um, you know, one of the conversations that they had recently is with a, a really large ETF provider. Um, and they said that they want to build an ETF for essentially, um, you know, based on crypto, but they don't want to have to leverage something like FTX or Coinbase or, you know, any other centralized provider because they don't trust the centralized custodian to be able to manage this. So they actually want to build something that is permission KYC, but something that's on chain so they can actually value, you know, actually audit these these smart contracts and, and view the code on chain and see how it works and you know they can do their own research essentially and so i think there's an element of like yes these hacks are bad but the thing that really matters in in the future of DeFi in my mind is that auditability that public perspective where you can just see what's on chain you can see what's happening and you can verify for yourself um where the assets are what the exchange looks like and, and how it how it works i think a lot of this stuff is super complicated which is why you know it took someone like this and, and mango markets for being out as long as it had been to, uh, to have the situation come up. But, you know, the, if you can verify things on chain, that's just a, a differentiated ability um, and, and provides more trust ultimately um, so long as everything functions properly. Yeah. Good points all around. Any last thoughts on mango before we move on or hacks or any of this stuff? Uh, I mean, most most of these hacks, in my opinion, are are like there's maybe ten people, you know, ten to a hundred people in the world that can do them. Um, and you know, like you look at a smart contract, and it's not like there's like a big red clearing hole where it's like you know you press this button, you know, it'll spit out money. Hack here. Yeah. I, I think I think a lot of these are more of inside jobs or like you know inside context of some sort than people really understand. Um, Can you say more about that? I saw that tweet that went viral from like GCS or GCR, whoever it was. And they're like, most we, of we've long, we've like long said that before this tweet, like, you know, this is well, just kind of like, that? you talk to, you talk to people, you know, there's maybe, there's maybe like 10,000 people who can write like production level solidity code in the world. That's probably being generous. It's probably closer to like one to 10,000. There's even less than that, that can actually pull off, you know, hacks of, this sophistication um, or, or others, you know, levels of sophistication, 
the participant set is just very small or the potential participants met. And so like, yeah, we kind of know who these people are, at least where they're coming from. The other thing I would say is, uh, yeah, I have no idea who did this. Um, but the, the model for security, I think in this, in this universe and shout out to one of our portfolio companies, Immunify has this model where essentially they put up a bounty for 10% of whatever could, you know, funds, funds lost. And it's just sort of an agreed upon number that you say, okay, if you're able to hack, you know, a million dollars off of this platform and you can prove that you can do that, there's a bug bounty for a hundred grand and you can go off and get that hundred grand as a, as a white hack, hack white hat hacker. Um, I, I think what's also going to happen with a lot of these hacks is you're going to start to see the inability to get the money out. If you take mango markets for a hundred million dollars and look at what the, the person who hacked the system is doing, they're saying, Hey, I'll give you back 90% of the value. If everybody agrees that I can keep 10%, right. like it, it's becoming kind of an industry standard. And, and I, I'd be curious to see, you know, how that continues, but my guess is it will probably proliferate because you just won't be able to move these assets onto any centralized platform and actually get dollars out of it or, or cash out of it eventually. Right. Good points. Let's move on. Um, there's actually something I want. So I was going to move into the Yuga Labs SEC. I'm not sure like how much there is to talk about there, but I do want to talk about that. But actually, I think you guys are in an interesting position um, as we head into the midterms. Uh, we're, we're like three weeks away. When, when are the midterms? November 8th, I think, is uh, is the date of these things. Uh, I remember, Michael, when we had when we got beers in San Francisco, you were telling me that you guys were um, – pretty involved in like just the political space and crypto and you're trying to make sure that uh, that's more of a hot button issue uh, in, in DC these days. Can you guys give an update on just like your experience in DC with the, I don't know how much you can talk about with the pack um, and like just where, where, like how you see crypto shaking out in these midterms. We've just been blown away by the reception of people who want to learn, uh, who want to be, you know, part of the you know larger crypto community. Um, and yeah, I mean, you kind of have these waves of, of political of industries that contribute to political, you know, causes, you know, like the NRA, NRA was one, you know, big tech was another. Um, and they kind of go from party to party. Um, and I think people realize that crypto is just like an overwhelming popular force in America. There's 70 million Americans that hold crypto. You know, a lot of the biggest issues of today, free speech, the right to transact, you know, censorship, like those are being asked and answered on blockchains primarily. Um, you know, Ukraine, you know, crypto was the largest donor. Like these things are kind of having this confluence. And, you know, whereas people were unable to have a, a perspective a year or two ago, now it's kind of like they have to have a perspective. And so, you know, a lot of people have, you know, basically signed up for, um, we're, not, we're not signed up for, but just kind of express their willingness to be, you know, progressive on the crypto cause and, and, you know, help push it in a way that has more legislation or, or at least people are more open to hearing about. Um, and, you know, it's just been overwhelmingly positive, I would say, and, and we'll see kind of what happens when, when the midterms happen, but um, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun. And I think it's kind of also spurred this political action. That's pretty ground roots or grassroots within crypto itself. Like, Dave Hoffman suing, you know, the Treasury Department, you know, Coin Center, like it feels like we kind of have this groundswell and, and base of support today, whereas we didn't have that a year ago. So overwhelmingly positive is what I would say. Yeah, I remember um, the infrastructure bill, I think it was, where where there was some language that was put in there on, you know, how, how to treat crypto, how to uh, tax it, you know, what are requirements for custodians. Um, and, you know, that, that I think was, was pretty outdated language. Um, and it did actually get changed. 
But there was this, to Vance's point, this groundswell of people calling up their Congress people, calling up their senators to, to try and get that stuff changed. And, and it ultimately, you know, did. Um, and that was sort of the, the galvanizing moment, you know, and, and maybe that was a year ago. I, I can't remember when that was, but that was sort of the moment where it's like, okay, like 2022 is coming up and then we got 2024 after that. Like there's a, there's a chance here to actually get some positive regulations put in place. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that we've been talking about internally is like, you know, everybody's been so afraid of regulation and so afraid of, you know, something that is just like, undue and too early to be implemented yet. But I, I think that the fact of the matter is like, yes, we're, we're afraid of bad regulation, but we should be supportive and excited about good regulation. Because if you finally have a roadmap for how, you know, this stuff should work in, in the context of, you know, the American system or the U.S. system and, and probably then gets exported elsewhere around the world, it's going to be something that's positive for this industry because right now, you know, when we're talking to founders, it's kind of like, okay, well, you know, here's the flavor of the month of like how to operate, how to fundraise, how to, how to launch, you know, what, what can you do? What can't you do? Do you have to move outside the country? Like there's just so many variables in play and it, and it changes pretty rapidly. If we have a playbook for how to run this stuff inside the U S it's going to be a massive growth engine for the economy. And right now, especially with the rest of tech just getting shellacked, uh, and you know, I, I don't see any really kind of exciting stuff on the horizon. Maybe artificial intelligence, but that's going to be something that lives inside of the massive corporations because they have the data set to be able to run that. It's just going to be a question of like, do we want growth or do we not want growth? Um, and, and Web three, I think, is the biggest growth engine potential that we see on the horizon. Talk about good regulation versus bad re- regulation. What do you think of this uh, SEC probe into Yugo Labs? Um, I mean, like, this is all kind of like hearsay, obviously, like the, like the SEC, you know, there's varying degrees of like probing. There's like, you're getting a Wells notice, you're getting sued, you're getting a request for information, or maybe they're just like asking you questions. And so like, first of all, I I don't know if this is entirely true. And I don't think like, you know, the SEC is just going, head over heels after Yuga. I think they're probably asking questions to one of the largest issuers of digital assets in the space. And like, that's probably okay. I wouldn't take it for anything more than that. Um, And, you know, if it kind of evolves into something more serious, like I like Yuga to be able to handle this. Like they're extremely well capitalized. I've heard really good things about the CEO and the core team. Like you kind of want the biggest people fighting the hardest battles. And I think it's, I think it's fine. People, people freak out about this stuff. I'm just like, this is like, you know, just chill. I think that's kind of it for some of the big news. Uh, there's some other side things. Like there's a couple of big ZK announcements coming up or that have happened over the last couple of days this week. Like Scroll um, announced an upgraded ZK EVM testnet. Uh, Polygon deployed their ZK EVM testnet. I think Aave, Uniswap, and Lens are all going to build on that. Uh, ZK Sync announced their Layer 3 Pathfinder. Um, obviously, Cosmos is in the narrative right now. Like I, I feel like it's like L two, like it's like scaling season, and like I don't know. You got you've got some cool stuff with like L twos. Uh, I was looking at the Arbitrum and Optimism data. Like the amount of I think it was active users just past Avalanche. I want to say. Yeah. Um, so like that's that's interesting to see. The zk EVM stuff is interesting to see. Cosmos I mean, Arbitrum, here, like, Arbitrum acquisition. Arbitrum you know, acquisition, which would be a great acquisition by the way. Like that was yeah. A, that's great. What I mean, do you guys know the um do you guys know that team the Prism Labs team? Don't I mean love their work? Don't know them. Um, yeah, right. but like a few things are becoming pretty clear to me. Number one, the L twos are 
not just scaling, they're getting like adoption and it's yeah. working. Yeah. Um, that's the first one. Number two, uh, there's a very clear revenue model for Ethereum to accrue values from these L2s. Like that's even better. Yeah. Um, and then if EIP 4844 comes out, you know, these are another 10 to 100x cheaper. Like that's ball game. You know, I don't, I don't understand what the other chains are really going to do. Like maybe there's some other programming languages, things like that. But like the case for all L1s becomes much less clear. Like you have to remember that a year ago or, you know, 18 months ago, the argument was that Ethereum was the victim of its own success. It did not scale. It is not scalable. Uh, the roadmap was not credible either. The merge happened. 4844 is happening. The L2s are scaling. ETH is accruing revenue. It's deflationary. It's like, Things are things. All, all the puzzle pieces coming together. That's I've yeah. never seen my eyes get so big. Like <laughs> I like you know, I just, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. talking about ETH is like. <laughs> I don't know. This stuff feels very obvious uh, to me, um, and and also and to Michael as well, like to our team. Uh, but you know, you go on Twitter and people are just like so negative, and uh, yeah, I mean, no, I'm talking to Santiago about this too. He's like, I'm loading up on ETH. Like it's, it just feels so obvious. <laughs> I mean, I'm super not, optimistic. Yeah. I'm not, super talking optimistic. About, not talking about what we're buying or what we're not buying. Uh, yeah. Your lawyers, like, your lawyers are like, you got to get a new host here. This Yano guy just, <laughs> <laughs> we need the other mic back. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm like, I'm reading Gabe Layden's tweets about like, you know, like he's yeah. like the thought leader for the free to own side. And like, we're bringing the users in and like, he's like, we're onboarding everyone onto ETH L1. And yeah, I mean, it's just going to be, I think it's going to be an awesome year. Like whenever, whenever Michael and I kind of like, you know, take it in the shorts, get like nuked a little bit, you know, and, and the market gets bearish. Our motto is like, give it a year. Next year will be better. Like this year was bad. Next year will be better. Like next year's going to be, I, I think great. Uh, and I'm excited for that. That's Third time in a row we've, yeah. uh, we, we've been we in the foxhole. Yeah. <laughs> Put blinders on, keep going. Yeah, I agree. That's what we're doing at Blockworks too. I agree. Awesome, guys. Um, anything else that we're missing for the week? We're launching Permissionless soon, 2023. Oh, oh. Ooh, I'm stoked for that. The, la yeah. the last one that I think is is important, and, and Michael sent this to me today, for the first time, uh, I think since like, it's been like a few months. The Senate is now favored to go Republican. So like a lot of the stuff that you're seeing in markets are having like these externalities now. And I think that feedback loop is, is pretty interesting. Um, and it kind of gives you the potential to think a little bit more optimistically about like, okay, where, where are our markets and, and just the world going? Um, like, I, I think there is a case where, you know, the, like you can take a very, not to like get, get super into the optimism case, but like, okay, the Russia, Ukraine stuff is really bad and, and the gas price is high. Well, like that just accelerated the nuclear transition by like probably 10 years. So like, that's actually a net positive, um, you know, like, okay, like people are really up in arms about inflation and, and like, you know, they, they really want it to go down. They're pissed about the gas prices. Like, okay, potentially like a more responsible, you know, fiscal and monetary policy is coming about. Like, I think there are a lot of reasons to be optimistic and it's starting to show up in the political landscape, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Markets, markets will uh, front run all this stuff. And so I think as we start to see the, the trickle on effects of markets, um, you know, we're, we're starting to see that, but you know, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be reactionary and it's going to be something that, you know, it's not gonna be bad forever. It's going to get positive eventually. Yeah. Like the, like, 
I think the thing that people are talking about is like the midterms are so important. Like that decides the future of the country for the next two years. If it's, you know, Democrat, House and Senate, it's going to be a lot different look than if it's, you know, gridlock, if, if the Republicans win either of the of the chambers. Like that is, I think, one of the things that's driving the most uncertainty in the market and potentially why you saw a rally today where the market is interpreting, you know, a potential red sweep or at least red, you know, part of that that side as being more bullish than anything else. So, you know, I'm trying to find a reason why the market is rallying today. I just have no clue. I think that could be part of it. I think that is it. I would assume, I think that is it, which is like there, there was some interesting polling data that came out that says that uh, not looking good for the Dems. So I, right. I would assume that the market says that's a good thing for us. Yep. Cool, guys. Well, uh, I like ending on an optimistic note. This is a great conversation. Appreciate it. Always enjoy this. Um, yeah. Have a good rest of the week, fellas. Later. You guys as well. See, see you in London. See you in London. <laughs>